It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hey guys, welcome back to the Natural Beekeeping Corner on the Hive Jive. I'm your host, Natalie B. And today I have a special guest, James Lee from the Sustainable Beekeepers Guild of Michigan. And welcome, James. We're going to talk about bees today, right? Yeah, that's always that's always on the top of my mind, talking about bees. Yeah. So how long have you, so how, how did you get into beekeeping and how long have you been doing it? So, you know, my beekeeping story is interesting. Um, it actually goes a little bit back before I started actually take, you know, keeping bees. I started in about 2012, 2013. Um, I became interested in beekeeping because I was a, an organic gardener and producing um, goods for a farmer's market and running a local farmer's market. And bees seemed like a natural progression from that. Obviously, I didn't really have a good idea of how much of a progression that would become. Um, and I started to do the research. I did a lot of reading and um, investigating local requirements for beekeeping. I discovered there were no ordinances where I uh, currently am keeping bees and uh, approached the city about um, ensuring that I wouldn't lose my colonies if mm -hmm. I put some up. And um, developing efforts and some grassroots type stuff, talking with public officials. And then I quickly learned that that probably was not a good idea because if there were no rules, why am I asking for rules? Right. And uh, that, that we abandoned that notion. But um, since then, uh, beekeeping has not been frowned upon in my, in my hometown. And it's actually, um, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? Um, in, it's endorsed and encouraged. Right. So um, I invited the U.S., um, the, the Department of Agriculture from our, our state, the Michigan Department of Agriculture, I'm sorry, and they did a site inspection. Um, we got verification that it was an acceptable practice in the area that I was, you know, looking to set up bees. Um, we had all the right approvals in place and then life happened and uh, we never got the bees. We just got all the permissions. Um, and you fast forward to 2020, I bought uh, my first nukes. And that's when, that's when the journey really took off. That's good. So you've been looking into this for 10 years, but you've had live bees for about two years. Yep. Going right. on to a third calendar year here. And the reason you're here today is because you're a fierce advocate of natural beekeeping practices, treatment free even, and uh, you're putting all your efforts into um, helping the community switch to more sustainable practices. And that's kind of what the whole Sustainable Beekeepers Guild of Michigan is about. Can you tell me a little bit about the specific creation of that group and why you started that group? Yeah, so, you know, in my day, in my day job, I'm a, I'm a social worker. And, you know, naturally with social work comes advocacy, especially in, again, grassroots type things, dealing with individuals that are impoverished or, um, lacking resources or education and helping others get what they need. And the Sustainable Beekeepers Guild is kind of a natural 
progression of that as well. And that we want to provide a uh, venue where individuals who are interested in uh, natural beekeeping, treatment-free beekeeping, can have dialogue and discussion about those practices all the way from the novice to the well-experienced beekeeper. Um, and we wanted to be able to have that venue for individuals to get that information and to also be a venue that disseminates that information. That's great. And um, so that makes me think about things like community outreach using beekeeping as the vector to help people out, whether it's to make a dignified income, uh, like with um, the uh, mobile loaves and fishes initiative here in Austin um, called Community First Village. We set up a teaching apiary there. People are getting trained uh, into the program. Um, being, uh, you know, with Les Crowder, he and I, we do a lot of uh, refugee communities training, both in the U.S. and in Africa on the ground. But there's also uh, other initiatives that do this kind of things. And like I, I think in particular about the Hives for Heroes, mm -hmm. all that can be used to bring wellness to populations of people that don't always have, um, you know, the opportunities otherwise, and, and it kind of branches, you know, I can relate to what you're saying because, um, you know, mindfulness when you're working bees is something that makes you feel better. You're present in the here and now, you're just kind of a, it's almost meditative. And I think that from that standpoint, beekeeping is a fantastic tool. As a social worker, do you, do you see any of those advantages that we don't always think about uh, when we're doing our own little beekeeping uh, of how to use that in your line of work? Is there something? Yeah, so, you know, beekeeping education mirrors a lot of the uh, uh, progress of the self-help movements and um, peer support type uh, relationships. And in, you know, in psychiatric social work, which is particularly my, my uh, specialty, uh, peer support is often someone who is experiencing a similar set of circumstances or maybe going through similar life experiences um, that supports another individual who is also um, needing help in that area. And the, the benefit of the, of the peer or what we would call in the beekeeping world a mentor is that they're sharing past achieved experiences with someone else who is seeking knowledge or looking to achieve the same outcome, which is improved lifestyle, or like in the beekeeping world, um, an improved uh, improved um, apiary, improved bees, better sustainability. So those those relationships are key um, in in both worlds, and they cross over well. And and as a again as a social worker and a therapist, um, as someone who likes to have um, healthy food and healthy lifestyle, making healthy decisions that improve, you know, my outcomes, that pours over into the beekeeping world as well. And, and that's kind of where the natural beekeeping really is a big influence in how that all plays out, especially with the, with the guild. So that brings up my questions about why specifically natural beekeeping and what's your strategy to keep your bees naturally? Where do you stop in the integrated pest management pyramid? What are your uh, favorite practices that you adopt and where do you stop? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question too. That's an evolving science too, right? Like, you know, um, we make decisions based on the information we have available to us. 
Um, when I first started beekeeping, I think I'm right in line with a lot of people who come into beekeeping. And I, I'm speaking just on experience with other beekeepers and having conversations with experienced beekeepers. Almost everyone starts out wanting to keep bees and be treatment free. You don't want to put unnatural things or synthetic things into your, your bee colonies. And uh, it's coming from the right place. It's coming from a desire to do the right thing. Um, and um, we live in a chemical society um, and they're generally and readily accepted and they have profitable uses in various you know, uh, venues. But um, I wanted to make a choice for myself and my practice that didn't require that intervention. And doing the research that I did over the last 10 years and then up to even now, um, I came to a conclusion that I didn't have to be a chemical beekeeper, um, that the resources available and I could and, and, and I could keep bees successfully that way. But I also committed to the notion of keeping bees in a more natural way, which is more in line with my philosophy, my lifestyle choices. Um, so my favorite techniques are, 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 are varied. I do what I think is needed, at least at the juncture uh, that I'm experiencing something with a colony. You know, each colony kind of is different, even if they're in the same yard. And um, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't put chemicals into the colonies and I don't treat the colonies with chemicals at any point. So up to that point, my personal practice, at least in the first couple of years, has been to develop colony health and identify breeder lines and bees that have what I need to continue on sustainably in my apiary. And that can involve making splits, that can involve you know, uh, natural swarms as well as um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, brood breaks? Yeah, brood breaks. Uh, yeah, brood breaks through splitting, um, but, ske but scheduled, but, you know, nat natural and unnatural swarming. And so, you know, in utilizing. Artificial. Yes, there it is. <laughs> uh, there's, there's so many things going on in your head. You sometimes get the word you want. Yes. So. So, so. For our listeners, we kind of beekeepers that are doing natural beekeeping, we differentiate between natural swarms and artificial swarms. Natural is when you leverage the um, swarming instinct, the reproductive instinct of the superorganism, where in the springs, when it's got enough resources, and as a general rule, when it has a lot of resources and, and it knows that it can safely um, cast a queen and a bunch of their bees, it will split itself in half or three quarters uh, and, and leave the, 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 the donor, the mother colony with a new, queens in, new queen in the making and the brood and the food and the comb, basically with the best chances of getting started. And the old queen's gonna go and take a chance, take it at it in the, in the wild and find another cavity and start over. But really what they're doing is setting up the offspring with the best chances of survival possible. And then like the old gorilla um, in the wild, the mother, the queen mother, uh, is going to leave. So that's a natural swarm. Now, um, natural swarming instinct. Artificial swarming is when you force the colony to create new queens um, by removing usually the queen, potentially doing a split and, um, and taking a bunch of the bees, maybe with some resources, and, and leave that colony left with 
uh, no choice but to make their own queens um, with the resources that they have left behind. Or you can just uh, build up packages and that's going to bring up a, a, a conversation about that. You're going to take the old queen with a bunch of the bees or just a bunch of the bees and give them another queen altogether. All those are artificial swarming, right? A package is really uh, in effect uh, an artificial swarm, but so is a split that you're forcing into, onto the colony. And that's the difference between natural swarming and swarming that's been forced onto the bees by beekeepers, I guess. I think so, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, so from that standpoint, I like to make a difference between that. Both will create bird breaks um, as long as you remove the queen and they're left with uh, no laying queen for a while. Um, but it's important to remember that the, the bird break is a very healthy cleansing um, part of the cycle because for a while there will be no new brood and brood is where issues happen. This is where the varomites reproduce. This is where a lot of the diseases um, take root, right? It's right there in the cocoons and the larvae of the bees. Um, so that's something that's super important. So I'm glad to hear you use brood breaks. Um, th that's another one. So you say split swarms, artificial swarms or natural swarms and catching them. Um, do you put up a lot of uh, swarm traps? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> last season I deployed, I think, 14 swarm traps. Um, and, uh, I, you know, our area is, there's a lot of bees where I live, and there are some that are feral that I would call feral and have monitored to be feral. Um, I, you know, that brings up the, 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 the discussion as to whether or not they are actually feral, but that's maybe another podcast, right? Um, so uh, monitoring bees in the wild so we can put the, the traps up and to catch their, their cast swarms, their primary swarms, their reproductive swarms. Um, uh, swarm trapping is definitely something that I've utilized and utilized heavily last year. But swarm retrieval was a big boon last year. That was something that I focused heavily on. Um, I focused heavily on getting those swarms that were, um, you know, coming from other people's apiaries, um, coming from maybe wild sources, but uh, supporting my own apiaries with, with those uh, swarm retrievals. What are your favorite uh, tricks to catch those swarms? How do you set up a, your own swarm traps? What do you bait them with? What's your strategy when you uh, do that? So I feel like I'm giving away a secret here. A trade uh, secret? Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, that, that's kind of uh, helping everybody, right? Because we're, we're trying to promote natural beekeeping and, and catching those swarms and uh, using those genetics that can be feral, uh, can be survivor, uh, sometimes are escaped from treated uh, colonies. We taking we're we're giving ourselves an opportunity to bring in not only genetic diversity but potentially finding uh, genetics that are strong and resilient and tolerant of some of the issues that the bees deal with. So it's, yep. it's helping everybody. <laughs> yeah. So one strategy I would share, and I think people might benefit from, especially if you live in an area that is saturated by beekeepers and bees. Um, there's a lot of people catching swarms come swarm season. May is about the peak of, you know, that season here for us in Michigan, at least in the southern portion of the state. And 
Um, I have identified areas that are wooded uh, that may be municipally owned, um, may be actually um, private property, things that are not easily accessible for someone to put a trap on or to go and retrieve a swarm. And I contact landowners, I contact the city, and I ask for permission to place traps in those areas. And I look for places that seem like likely candidates for wild bee populations. Um, and I have a few and I don't share those ones and I do monitor those and I do get calls on them. And if the landowner is willing to leave them, we, we leave them, you know, so that way they're, they're in their own natural environment and I can engage in an actual evaluation of that population as to whether it be something viable I wanna bring into my own apiary. Like a tree, uh, tree uh, hive. Yeah, log hive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so call your local city, you know, ask for permission. Get You got to have liability insurance, too. That's key, um, especially if you set foot onto, you know, public property, they're going to want you to have insurance. Do you get an uh, umbrella policy or do you have like a beekeeper's liability so I think at each, you know, each venue is different, but a general umbrella uh, uh, policy, liability po policy for yourself or maybe an organization. If you have a private practice or business that you're operating, if you're a beekeeping practice, you know, um, you have a business that liability, general liability will cover personal injury, things of that sort. Yep. That's really good advice. You can use it for removals. You can use it for hands-on classes. You can use it for uh, leasing your colonies onto people's lands. You can use it for all kinds of things, right? That's right. Yeah. Protect yourself. Actually, another, if you're getting into beekeeping, natural or not, that goes the same. And you're doing this kind of, these kinds of activities, you might want to create an LLC and, and just kind of separate your liability from your company, from your personal um, property, basically. So that's right. Yep. Side note on that is true for everybody. Um, as a natural beekeeper, do you restrict yourself and how do you select the areas that you just mentioned? Um, do you look for forage? Do you look for uh, inhabited? Do you, what, what's your selection process there? It doesn't as matter if you're a natural beekeeper in that context. Yeah, as far as uh, trapping or placing. Yes, uh, trapping or, or catching swarms. Uh, so for 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 that, my my general overall approach is convenience first. But the second the second overall approach is um, placing traps in areas where swarms have previously been caught or reported, um, and uh, you know fielding those phone calls. Uh, returning to areas where they're being reported as being frequent swarms, you know, that, uh, yeah, we get them five times a year. Well, I'm going to place a trap there, especially at the right. color stand. It's every year, it's the same problem. But then, you know, that creates a whole other, you know, research uh, journey, because now you're looking to find where's the apiary in this area that's casting that. And is that apiary, you know, a treating apiary? Is that someone who's replacing their bees every year with packages? Is are these bees that have the vitality right. that I want or don't want, and that that informs the decision I make next with that particular colony. Where do I put it in my apiary? Does it get its own yard? Am I monitoring it or am I requeening it? And all of those things, yeah. Do you? How do you uh, decide that? Like, uh, uh, do you don't always know that information. Obviously, you're you're more often than not guessing. 
there's not really any way to know for sure if a colony that you're trapping uh, or catching is going to be escaping from a treated apiary or a feral colony that's not treated or from a non-treating apiary. Do you regard those the same or do, what do you do to kind of decide what you do with them? I have my own idea, but I'm asking yeah. your your. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't have a fixed decision matrix, right? But I do look at what the colony is doing. What am I observing that's going on in the colony? Uh, is, am I seeing a boatload of mites right off the get-go? Is this an absconded colony? Um, you know, making those decisions based on the experience of others is one of the first things I do. I consult a multitude of people, especially if it's something I've not seen or experienced before. Um, you know, what would you do in those circumstances? Um, sometimes it's as simple as adding some feed, you know, it, they need some sugar syrup or, or, you know, as poor nutrition. Um, but I make those decisions based on each, each colony's circumstances. Uh, you can blanket approach some, if I have extra Queens on hand and I know what the Queens, um, track record is, or, you know, her history, I may very well just requeen that particular colony or find a beekeeper whose queen just, you know, pooped out or, you know, left or, you know, right. uh, was uh, superseded and the swarm, you know, the, the cells didn't uh, replace it. And hey, here's a queen for now, right? Keep your colony going. Do you ever let them requeen themselves? Uh, oh, yeah, 100%. I, I, I'm, I'm the crazy beekeeper running around the yard going, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Yeah. Because I think maybe 60% of the time I happen upon a colony, I may have already lost the queen to a swarm and have come upon capped cells, especially in remote apiaries where, um, you know, access to them is limited. And I have a few of those too. Um, but that's an opportunity to take advantage of the natural progression of the colony and their reproduction and those genetics, especially if it's a favored genetic, um, you know, line that I'm monitoring and make multiple colonies from those particular swarm cells as well. So before we talk a little bit more about basically breeding queens and, and selecting for genetics that are desirable for natural beekeeping, um, I wanted to kind of give you my, my, for people that are listening, my kind of policy when I catch swarms or get colonies that I don't know what their story is, um, then I kind of let them do their thing and monitor. And then I give them a chance to show me what they can or cannot do. And after a year or two, then I decide if that's really something. So there's a couple of things. Either I don't have the patience to kind of let them kind of recover because even a struggling colony in my apiaries, I can, one of my favorite practices that I started, you know, really focusing on um, is when I have a struggling colony, I will condense it into a much smaller box and, get rid of an excess real estate that they might be struggling to defend that might be stressful to them. Big boxes with too much space are very stressful to the colonies, especially in a Langstroth or vertical hive that has a chimney effect of some kind and very poor insulation all the way around. So, and, and they have fewer bees to defend. So what I do is I will, even if it's diseased, I've done it before. I'm like, okay, well, it's, it's looking diseased and things are not looking great. There might be some viruses potentially transferred by mites or there's other issues, but obviously they're stressed, which is causing their unhealthiness. To me, uh, mites are actually a symptom of an underlying problem. 
very often linked to the genetics of the queen and its quality. Uh, if it's been well mated, if it's, you know, it wasn't well fed, you know, all kinds of parameters come into play. But so I take that colony and I will just condense it into a five frame nuke or a, a very small box, a, a transport nuke for a tabar hive, for example. And I've noticed, and I might potentially feed them sugar syrup, but just the simple fact of um, condensing them really tight and having a much higher ratio of bees to comb usually fixes the issue. So to me, I mean, um, that, that's one way to look at it. Having a brood break sometimes will, will help, but on a small colony that's struggling, it's hard to do. I will, however, if I see signs uh, on a colony that's strong enough, uh, signs that they're, they've got issues with, you know, mite-related symptoms or crud or, or, you know, diseases and viruses that are not looking like they're sustainable long-term, then what I might do, I'm like, that queen's obviously no good. They have the honey, they have the resources, they even have the numbers of bees, but there's something wrong. So I'll pinch the queen and let them requeen themselves with the eggs. The thinking behind that is that they will go and um, mate and it, uh, do it more often when there's resources out there, right? Because the quality of your queen is going to depend on what kind of resources you're going to find. And, and in periods of nectar flow, you're going to have better quality queens than you do. If you are not in the nectar flow, then you might consider feeding them to uh, basically fake that nectar flow. And then the hope is that they will grow a queen that's going to mate with 15 to 20 drones on average in the area. We're lucky enough that we don't have a whole lot of treated apiaries. We have a lot. What I should say is we have a lot of people that don't treat and to me, we were talking about, I don't know if it was on this call or before when we were chatting, but you were talking about uh, mite bombs and things like that. So to me, that's a scare tactic. That's a myth, right? Um, it's actually more dangerous for your colonies, for your queens to mate with treated drones that are of, of inferior quality that are going to um, uh, co uh, contribute a disproportionate amount of poor or unviable sperm to the spermatheca of your queen. See, my whole theory is it's all, it, it's mostly the, the, the most important thing is the queen and its quality. I even think that um, grafting queens or grafted queens are not as good as those natural swarm queens that they've fed royal jelly from the beginning. They're fat, they're healthier, they're more able to go mate more with more drones and they'll come back and they'll have better track records. So from that standpoint, this is what I'm trying to do. It, it's possible that those queens were coming from breeding programs or were grafted packages are notorious for that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so changing the, um, the queen makeup of the colony already from the get-go serves as a, as a, as a, yeah, it is a treatment in effect, but they are not putting any pesticides or any foreign substances into that colony. And that's mm -hmm. where I stop. Do you use any kind of like um, organic, quote unquote, acids and, you know, formic acid, oxalic acid? And what's your thoughts on that? You know, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm with a lot of the people and at least those that want to see their bees succeed, right? That um, even 
folks that are using chemicals don't want their bees to die and they do suffer, they suffer losses too. Um, and uh, I'm of the mind that while I, I'm tempted, you know, because the notion is if you do this, the bees will be okay. And um, I'm not, you know, so callous to the point where it doesn't bother me that um, I've lost a colony. Um, but I also am looking at what's in line with my goals as far as sustainability is concerned and whether or not this is going to influence the outcome that, I, that, that I'm looking for. And that is a bee that, um, or a, a maternal line of bees that can sustain itself without that support, um, be it organic or non-organic, synthetic, or even just general harsh chemicals. Um, those types of interventions are kind of where I draw the line for my, myself. Check with me in 10 years. I might have switched, you know, ideology. I don't know. I can't tell you where I will be in 10 years, but I can tell you that my philosophy now is that my goal is to have a, a, a breeding line within my apiary that is sustainable and viable and, and able to control the mite population that it's suffering to the extent it doesn't require my intervention. Um, yeah. as far as biotechnical, biomechanical interventions, you know, things like, um, uh, drone culling, uh, you know, brood breaks, uh, those mechanical interventions, I see those as, yeah, they're labeled as treatments, but I think we have to look at the term or the idea of treatment free. Sometimes, um, it, it, it has a preset notion that you just let the bees do what they're doing and then they die or they don't die, and then you move on from there. Um, that might be the case in some circumstances, but my idea is that treatment-free is the end, it's the goal. Um, and I don't necessarily think that the means we engage in in the natural practice are interfering with that goal. Um, it, it is a means to an end in a lot of circumstances. And for me, that's my philosophy of, at this juncture today. You can ask me tomorrow. I'm right. We all change our minds, especially in beekeeping, as we grow into the our practices, right? And our experience grows as well. I think that some of the cognitive dissonance that comes from wanting to be a natural beekeeper when we first get started and then jumping on the treatment bandwagon comes from fear of losing your bees and fear that's instilled in us by the noise that's very much so um, amplified by pesticides companies and all this stuff, right? What, what's your thought about that fear and that co cognitive dissonance, that cognitive disconnect, basically? Yeah, I mean, we make decisions based out of what we're currently informed by. We make decisions based on experience as well. And I can tell you, anytime I happen upon a dead out, my first reaction is, this isn't working and I'm just going to abandon everything. I can't keep right. going. And that that is based in the, the idea that you don't you don't want to fail. You don't want the bees to suffer some. I mean, intrinsically, we don't want to harm the animals we're engaging, regardless of our philosophies. I don't think anybody willingly wants to harm the animals they're 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 uh, fostering. Um, and so those fears can really influence our decision-making processes, but they can also influence how we're internalizing or receiving new information that contradicts what we currently know or already know. Right. Um, and we get caught in the trap of not allowing new information uh, to right. 
be accepted, especially where we're at today. And what informs a lot of my practice is not, it's not practical experience. What informs my practice has more to do with what others are doing successfully. And that goes back to that notion of the 12-step programs and peer supports and mentoring and beekeeper education. If I can latch myself onto somebody who is doing it successfully and can help me replicate that in my own practice, I'm going to follow that individual so I can learn how to do it the correct way because they're obviously demonstrating a rate of success in their own apiary. That's, that's yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and I think that you're touching upon a point that's very important. When people are trying to be natural slash treatment-free beekeepers, and they fail, very often it comes from a lack of resources for them to rely upon uh, tips and tricks and best practices in natural beekeeping, uh, what really tends to work, um, the essence of what works with that. I, I'm a firm believer, and I'm sorry to say that because I know it's probably controversial. I'm a firm believer that we can all try to raise our own line of super queens and all this stuff but it's a very fleeting uh, concept that very quickly gets diluted by the genetics in the area when your queens go mating and if you don't let them go free mating and you control the drone colonies that are you know surrounding your area so that you control the genetics a little bit better you are impoverishing in effect, the, the genetic pool for those queens. So there's inbreeding going on. And that's part of the issue as well that we very often blame the varomites for when we see those spotty brood patterns. But more often than not, it's actually from poor uh, mating or inbreeding, right? So so there's something to keep in mind there. But but to go back to, to what you just said, I think that uh, for people to be uh, successful uh, as natural beekeepers, they need the tools. They need the understanding of why it is that works. And the first line of studying, I would say, is to really understand the biology of the superorganism. That's mm -hmm. where everything goes back uh, to and, and how it works, because then we can leverage that to, um, to first understand what's going on in the colony. What is the colony that looks healthy? What do the bees do and how do they cleanse themselves? And, and what does nature do uh, to allow them to find ways to solve their own problems? The, the very, you know, polyandry and, and, and multiple matings um, that bring in so many different cohorts of sisters that do different things and have different skill sets allows the superorganism to be much more adaptable. And that's the key. Being adaptable is what the solution is. And it doesn't come, um, you know, you can, I mean, I love the VSH concept and all stuff, but it's not necessarily, we're, we're thinking too hard. We need to go back to the basics um, of the superorganism and understand that we need to rely on them and not have the, and I'm going to be <laughs> probably getting shot at, but we, we're, we're fairly arrogant as human beings to believe that as beekeepers, we can overthink the, the, the colonies. They, we need to rely on them to give us the answers, not try to impose, you know, grafting, we're gonna do artificial inseminating, we're gonna control all the parameters around the apiaries, we're gonna breed and all. I think that in the end, it's a wild goose chase when we can rely, I mean, Les and I, we have over 250 colonies that we're managing very successfully. We make a very good living 
based on what we're doing. By the way, it doesn't all have to be honey production. I always say work smart, not hard, right? So um, services, education and beekeeping, develop your own niche, be creative in the way you do this. I don't want to be a commercial beekeeper. That's way too much work and it doesn't pay enough for the amount of work. But that's my thing, right? So define, define your goals and, and, and just be confident and follow your instincts. But it starts with understanding the bees, all that biological mechanisms that drives them and that allows them to be so resilient and to develop their own strategies. So that's kind of my, my thing. But let's talk about VSH for a second and, and uh, breeder queens. And, and also, I think you were talking about that earlier. And, and I want to kind of hear your take on, on that as well. Well, you know, I am, I am initially, um, I, I, I guess I'm drawn and enamored by the evidence that is supported um, through VSH, uh, the testing of VSH, the varroa sensitive hygiene that is in um, certain lines of stock and their effect on not only controlling the mite population through the uncapping and recapping of brood, but I'm, uh, I'm enamored by the effect that it has on disease and pathogens too. Um, and for, for myself, um, that particular uh, characteristic is not necessarily, it's not a silver bullet. Um, I mm -hmm. think one part of the whole puzzle that you just described that helps give the natural beekeeper, um, a chemical-free beekeeper, a tool um, and as far as the history of the VSH, I, I believe maybe it was discovered in some of the Michigan bee populations originally. Um, and that was something that was occurring naturally as an adaptation to the pressure that was being um, put on the bees. And it was a selection that occurred as a result of that pressure. And so to me, that's a part of the process. And now we're at, we, we, can, rec we can recreate it, we can reproduce it, and we can drop it into our colonies. But if all, if all the other pieces, uh, again, that you, you eloquently described the, the, the natural aspects of uh, managing your apiaries aren't taking place, that queen's not going to succeed on her own. Um, it is the work of the superorganism. So there's a whole uh, gamut of things that are contributing to the overall success of the colony. So I, I, VSH, I think, is, is, is an excellent tool in the beekeeper's toolbox. Um, and can definitely help, especially if you're starting out with a package, right? Um, Metro Detroit is a, um, a, a metropolitan area that is about six counties. Um, it's often referred to as Detroit, but there are six suburban counties surrounding uh, the Detroit area. And in that area, there's approximately six million people. And in that population, I can't tell you how many are beekeepers, but I can tell you it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And our area receives an enormous amount of imported bee packages every year. And they're actually already being ordered. They're starting to come in as early as mid-March, uh, uh, first week of April, before we even have drones flying. And uh, because they don't come from the same area. That's right. That's right. And so the drones that you're are coming with the packages. If you're getting many, you might get enough. 
who knows, but those drones very well may not even be, you know, ready for mating. But in principle, there's not a lot of local drones for mating to occur if you end up in a situation with queen failure. So then there's a whole other queen market behind that. So the notion is you got all these packages coming into the area. VSH would be a viable solution if you have a VSH queen you can provide to somebody who's bought a package and maybe even lost their queen or did not lose their queen and made it a few months with their brand new colony, their brand new package. You're providing them with education and mentorship and you teach them how to install that VSH queen into their colony. You're improving their chances of success Mm -hmm. Uh, and you're improving their chances of learning more about the practice instead of walking up to a dead out come October or Mm -hmm. even January or February and then being discouraged and then selling your equipment. Right. Uh, so well and, and speaking of which it's always better to start with more colonies and, and trapping swarms can help as well but always start with more than a couple colonies the more colonies you have the more opportunities you have to be successful uh, and to learn and and to have resources to share between colonies i think that one of the biggest problem with packages if they're artificial swarms the bees are not primed to be you know, necessarily uh, functioning as a group. Their queen is not their mother. And the worst part of it all is, yes, they come from treated apiaries, but they're not local. Very often they come from other states, uh, other weather patterns, and they're not adapted to your local cycles of weather and, and forage. And so that's a huge stressor. They're not going to do as well as proven. Uh, than uh, local queens. So that's that's part of the issue right there with the packages. One thing I would say, and that's the part of the not looking at everything black and white. I think that being extreme on our positions doesn't lead to our message getting promoted or heard on both sides. People that treat have legitimate concerns. People that don't treat or don't want to treat have legitimate concerns as well. I think that the key is to realize that it doesn't have, you don't have to be an extremist about this. You can be very pragmatic about it and realize that in the case of packages, yes, they're not necessarily good. They're four to six weeks behind on the, on the growth curve and they're notoriously difficult to get set up and they tend to abscond and they've got all the issues that you mentioned very, um, very specifically. But I have been known to use a couple of packages before, let them brood up, let them build a nest, uh, let them grow with the nectar flow and, and give me basically the base for either requeening or letting them grow a queen that's going to be half local. And in that case, you're kind of using those resources. You can be pragmatic. You don't have to be black and white about everything. Just use what you got. Be smart about it. Understand the biology that's behind it to your advantage, right? And and that's the key, I think, uh, with that. So how do we get the message out more efficiently? And I'm just kind of propping you up for basically what you're doing actively and and what we've been trying to do as well. So how do you think we can get the uh, natural beekeeping, treatment-free beekeeping message out? There's a lot of, of resistance, a lot of acrimonious resistance and a lot of fighting about this and and people get you know heated up and and it gets ter- it turns downright nasty sometimes on you know b source and other forums yeah <laughs> I, uh, I know we talked about that right <laughs> so um 
and you know, justifiably so, some folks have you know a disposition toward the practices or even promoted practices that seem like they would be utter failures. And they're coming from a situation where they they want to see the bees succeed too. I don't think anybody maliciously starts out saying, uh, right. you know, I can't wait to go drop a bunch of formic on my bees today. I'm so excited. They're thinking more about survivability. Um, and, you know, in, in our natural beekeeping world and where the information of natural beekeeping and treatment-free has come, I think we're at a point that's known as, uh, you know, reactive devaluation. Um, and this is something that comes up often in, in, you know, the therapy world. It comes up in dealing with uh, populations um, that are underserved. Um, it's, you know, a bias toward things that come from a, an antagonist or a proposed antagonist. So if the idea is generally associated with um, a negative experience, you're going to devalue any positive information or anything that good, good that comes from even that research, if it's research, uh, based on your perception of an original messenger. Um, and that can go that can go back centuries, thousands of years. You see that in people's disposition toward organized religions. You see that in people's dispositions toward political parties. We all have a reactive devaluation. So it's us versus them, kind of. A thing. And and it's a natural human tendency, philosophically, psychologically. This is a tribal mentality that we mm -hmm. have, and there is nothing inherently wrong with it. The problem is, is that we misuse it when we allow it to become the only thing that's informing our decisions. Right. And um, what I see as a way forward is to be able to build an awareness of that. We can have a discussion um, or a dialogue and be in disagreement and not necessarily endorse the behavior or actions of the other person, especially if they're benign or they're, or they're, not, they're not malicious. Um, the unfortunate they side- They can be uninformed in some cases. Right. The unfortunate side of this dialogue that occurs in beekeeping is that often um, where it could be seen as a harmful position is because in our world, you know, bee, beekeepers feel that if you treat the bees won't die, the natural beekeeper or treatment-free beekeeper feels that, you know, bees do die and they're going to die and you know, th there's nothing you can do to stop death. Treatment bees do as well, by the way. That's right. That's right. And, you know, um, it, there's anecdotal evidence that supports, you know, um, averages between treated apiaries and untreated apiaries, but that doesn't go a long way in the argument because somebody no. wants to know how can I keep bees and how can I guarantee that they're going to live? Again, that's what's your goal, right? So my goal in the beginning, and um, many people might know him, the listeners might know him, uh, Mel Dislikin is a Michigan beekeeper. Yes, the on-the-spot uh, queen rearing. That's okay. right, yeah. OTS. And, you know, one of the things that he mentions and that I, I hold to dearly for myself and my apiary and my goals is that you, you know, you either want bees or you want honey. Okay. If you want bees, you can have honey, but if your goal is honey, bees are going to kind of fall to the, to the wayside in that decision-making process um, because uh, reproducing bees takes a lot more resources and a lot more honey. And so I made a decision. I love bees. I love working the bees. I love listening to the bees, going out to the colonies in winter and just putting the stethoscope up to the colony, listening to the hum is so very therapeutic to me. 
got myself one of those. Yes, yes. Oh, and you, you know, you get to make the neighbors uh, uh, think weird, think weird things about what are you doing? Listen, yes, if we're crazy. <laughs> you need to see a social worker, right? Um, <laughs> but if the social worker is out doing it, we've got a problem, right? <laughs> exactly. That is what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, and it brings it brings a smile to my face to do that, and I don't feel that I am doing harm to my counties with my practices. And at some point, um, if the overall goal is outweighed by the overall failure, we have to revisit the decisions that we're making and you have to make a different choice um, because you can't repeat the same insanity and expect a different result. Different results, right? So, and, and, and I think being aware of our own cognitive bias and our own mental limitations about the, the whole concept is important. For example, I was told uh, basically I was torturing, I was getting off on torturing neglected animals because I was not treating them. My bias on the other end of the spectrum is to say, I will never uh, uh, torture my animals and subject them to those harsh chemical treatments. Right? That's right. That's so, right. I mean, we both are coming from the same place. We want the well being of our bees, but we're going about it in different ways um ways and that's kind of something that the keep in mind the other thing that we keep it, need to keep in mind is if we want our message to get out there is we want to be educated about this we want to really carefully think about it uh, what it is that we believe in and how we're successfully achieving it you're doing a lot of research you're practicing it in your apiary um, the other thing i like to do is to you know i'm talking because a lot of people have asked me how do i um, make my arguments and, and just kind of like share my message in a way that's convincing. Part of it is to see what's in here, truly hear what the others are saying, take it in, digest it, see what it, how it, it goes against your own cognitive bias, flip it around and see how it fits, you know, in the general philosophy and maybe adjust your own philosophy, but have that cohesive consistent, coherent uh, understanding of what it is that you're doing and why. We all there, have different goals, right? And there's a reason that the, the adage of uh, ask 10 beekeepers a question, you get 11 yes. or 20 answer. The reason that that is an adage, the reason that that's said is because you literally are going to get different answers based on different beekeepers experience. Mm -hmm. And of those 10 beekeepers, they are all keeping bees 10 different ways. And even within your own apiary, you're not necessarily treating any two hives exactly the same. Right. You're, 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 you're engaging an onslaught of regular information and making millions of decisions, every single millions of decisions every single day. Um, Dealing with a, an angry colony while you're in the middle of addressing a swarming issue, you're making decisions on the fly. And you're, you, if you have the information there from your research and your education and your development, you're able to make choices. But if you don't have that information, you're not getting it by learning. You're not getting it by speaking to those who disagree with you. Right. You're not speaking to those who do agree with you. You're not going to be able to make informed decisions. You have to be able to talk to all people and, and get that information and think through the entire process the entire time. And that's why I, I always ask if we've been beekeeping for 50 years or for five years or for one year, what's changed that influences how we ingest and apply new data 
research and approved application of that knowledge? Like what is helping us apply that, that information? Experience informs our decisions, but sometimes experience limits our ability to make new decisions because we become fixed in our practice. Exactly. That I applies. always say you need both theory and practice. That's right. But do we have to agree to cooperate? Uh, you know, uh, love thy neighbor is a misappropriated phrase, right? Uh, I think sometimes we lose sight of what that actually means. And that working together does not always require an endorsement of another person's behavior, right. lifestyles, or beekeeping practices. And in our case, again, no two hives are kept the same, but we have a responsibility toward each other as individuals, not just as beekeepers. And that goes a long way in the dialogue occurring between those who choose to treat, those who don't, those who are in the middle, those who aren't sure. Um, right if we're at enmity with each other all of the time, every new beekeeper that comes into the fold is going to continue killing their first colony. Right. And we, that's none of us want that. The treating beekeepers don't want that. And the, the, the un, non-treating beekeepers don't want that. We want to see the bees and the beekeepers succeed. Yeah. No. And I think that there's a couple of things that you're, what you just say are very pertinent and they bring up to, uh, empathy and tolerance mm -hmm. Um, you want to put yourself into the shoes of the others as well and, and what it is that they're trying to do. I, I think it also brings up humility. And the, the, I want to, that's kind of a segue into something you and I discussed earlier also is the, uh, the Dunner Kruging, whatever, Hattie Kruger effect. Dunning, Dunning Kruger, Dunning -Kruger effect. effect, right? It's where we don't always realize we don't know what we don't know, basically. And the problem is not so much that because there's some critics of that saying it, it ha happens randomly as well. The studies are kind of like a little bit biased. There's controversy about the concept. But, the, but what I really got out of this is we need to have the humility to realize that we don't know everything, right? And that, you know, we don't, especially don't know what we don't know. And as soon as we take a step back and think about that this way, we have less bias, I think. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a way, again, it's I think it's been the theme of the discussion, you know, uh, empathy is had by understanding. Hmm. At least being able to walk in another person's shoes while not actually experiencing their issues. Um, and that has a lot to do with willingness, but, you know, our, as to the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, is a study that was done about 20 years ago um, that evaluated knowledge base and um, the curve on which knowledge um, is, is improved upon or gained. And individuals uh, who progress through a cycle of one year of knowledge, two years of knowledge, three years of knowledge, often will um, disseminate this information based on having accrued so much data but with no actual viable practice and are now communicating that same information without actually having the experience to communicate. As self-proclaimed experts. That's right. That's right. But the, the, the component of the Dunning-Kruger effect, as complicated as all that might have sound like therapists, social workies, is that individuals who suffer the, the, the primary Dunning-Kruger effect are individuals who are not willing to listen. Yeah. And if you're not willing to listen, you can't get new information to counter what you're hearing. I'll give a good example. 
I attended a beekeeping class. Uh, I believe it was last year. Um, I'm always going to new classes. I'm always listening to new education. I'm listening to new talks. I listen to Randy Oliver. I listen to Jamie Ellis. Exactly. I read his stuff too. Good beekeepers research everything. That's right. And and these are not people I agree with as far as treating practice is concerned, but I listen because they know things that uh, I don't know. And I'm willing to listen to what they're saying. But this particular individual um, was teaching a brand new beekeeping class. And the recommendation was that you should pull all the honey off of your off of your colonies at the end of the season. And you don't leave honey. You don't leave any of the honey for the bees and you feed them sugar syrup. Oh, my goodness. And so I, I, as a, as a, let's say this would have been to, yeah, first, second year beekeeping from just general practice in reading, know that the bee as an insect mm-hmm. is storing honey for itself mm-hmm. duration of the winter. And in Michigan, it's a long winter. Right. I know that I'm taking what that particular insect is they've strived the entire season to create for themselves yeah i'm taking it all it's not a natural process it doesn't cognitively speaking it doesn't drive with it does not compute right and it's not computing with the information i've learned through research and now this individual's been keeping bees for a really long time successfully i assume i maybe i don't know um he's at a point where his apiary is, is very large she sells packages and nukes every year um, I don't have to question his motives, but, and I don't necessarily have to question him, but I can make a decision rationally based on the info that I have available to me that what he's saying isn't right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at what point does my experience allow me to engage that individual in a discussion and say, hey, listen, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense. Um, and we've got data that supports alternative approaches to what that individual is purporting. So that affects us currently in our current treatment-free, you know, treating dialogue. Uh, The Dunning-Kruger effect is often utilized as some sort of a, well, you know, you don't have experience, so you're not qualified to talk. Maybe in some extents, but if the information that you're promoting doesn't match research and what other people are teaching, I can make a decision that you're wrong. You can still use that to inform your thing. And, And I think that part of it is not only just also a lot of people will will think that no, and they'll have that ego part of it. But very often, that's just a lack of skills. They're not at the skill level. They need to have a correct assessment on their skill level. So they don't even mm-hmm. know because of it, right? And then on this uh, um, opposite effect, people that are very knowledgeable um, will assume very often that everybody else knows almost as much as they do, or at least the basics. And it's not the case either. So we have conversations that go nowhere sometimes because we assume that the other people are on the same um, uh, uh, basis as we are, but also that they have the same goals or similar goals. And to your example, I think it's very uh, striking that basically that individual doesn't have the same goals at all. They use their bees as a greed, as a profit making widgets. And from that standpoint, it makes perfect sense to them it works really well. They don't have necessarily consciously, um, they think they have the well-being of their bees in mind, but I, I think it's driven, the way they're doing this is actually driven by a different goal than you and I would have. They need their bees to pay the rent. 
Exactly. And, and, and they're using them. They want to grow them without any kind of uh, thought into the actual animal. It's kind of the, the feedlots versus the grass-fed kind of a concept, right? Yep. It's yep. kind of like the um, mindful beekeeping and more like industrial beekeeping kind of a concept. And I'm not going to say commercial because they have commercial beekeepers that, you know, keep their bees mindfully and, and I don't want to generalize. Um, and, and so there's that as well. We want to make sure we are able to see the bigger picture and, and speak from less authoritarian, no, it's not a, a categoric uh, perspective. When we talk to people, we can't, we can't say either y'all and we, right? It's all that tribalism yeah. that, you know, you're wrong and because I'm right, kind of a thing. Yeah. So by understanding all that and taking a step back and being more humble and more knowledgeable about all this and following your instinct and, and um, basically the lead of the bees and what they actually do, because that's in the end, that what that's what matters the most. We can start communicating with people in a way that makes sense and meet and hopefully in a, in a point where it makes sense for the bees as well. Not everybody has the same goals. So that there's a spectrum. It's not gonna be black and white. It's not, you know, we're not all gonna agree. We, we all have different goals. But when it comes to natural beekeeping, I think that having the knowledge and um, the best practices and having the tools that you need to not only talk, but also practice that is what matters the most. Yeah, and I don't have to convert you to treatment-free beekeeping to talk to you about treatment-free beekeeping. You don't have to control anyone. Nobody yeah. ever has to change what other people are doing. That's not the thing, right? Right. And we have to be aware of our own, you know, in, in, in our, in the natural beekeeping world, you know, I guess on our side of the fence, right. Um, yeah, on our side of the fence. <laughs> yeah. On, on our side of the fence, right. You know, the confirmation bias is tricky and we make the Dunning-Kruger effect true right. uh, when we speak to things we may not be qualified to speak to, or we speak right. as though, like you said, we have the authority to speak on those things if we've not demonstrated knowledge or experience. Um and we all favor ideas that confirm our own existing beliefs. And we have to be aware of that going into a conversation with someone who doesn't share that belief that you have confirmed in yourself. These are things that I believe to be true, but they may not necessarily apply completely to the other individual. I don't need my bees to pay the rent. So that informs the decisions that I'm making with them. But I'll be the first to tell I'm not going to knock you if I know that I need grocery monies to pay, uh, to, to feed my children. Mm -hmm. and beekeeping is my livelihood, at least at that point. Um, how I got there is irrelevant. That's where I'm at. I've got to make decisions that I can guarantee. I'm, I'm going to make choices based on whether or not I can buy groceries. And that's going to apply how I learn and disseminate information. But I need to be aware that I'm making this choice, not just because- For specific is reasons. Right. There's other reasons. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and again, it goes back to our, our constraints, our individual constraints. That's right. That's but right. knowing that is, is important. I think that, um, you know, basically, if you, the other thing, and I will leave, you know, uh, my personal opinion out of that after that, but I think that if we go at people with a fire, with a rage, they're not going to listen to us anyway. So we, it behooves us to hear them 
to say, I hear this, I agree with what you're saying on this point, but here's, you know, some other considerations and not clashing, the message will go a lot further and maybe yeah. really plant a seed and have people That's think, right. you know, not only on their end, but also on our end. That's going That's to right. involve our own thinking about the entire problem. And one of the underlying, and this goes back, and I'm, I'm going to plug now. So the Sustainable Beekeepers Guild of Michigan. Good. I was going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. So, the, you know, one of the underpinnings uh, of, of, and it's not just me, there's other beekeepers involved, and there's other beekeepers that are not treatment-free beekeepers that are involved. And the notion is to engage this discussion um, of how do we keep bees sustainably in an effective way that benefits us and the bees. It benefits the apiary, it benefits the beekeeper. And so, you know, uh, there's this thing called the stages of change. And if you wanna look it up and do the research, if you're listening. Oh, you kind of froze up there, James. It says my connection is unstable. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can, but uh, you were talking about the stages of change for those who are listening and you froze up and we couldn't hear. Okay, so for those who are listening, you can look up the stages of change and the underpinnings of the philosophies that we're hoping to utilize in this effort through the Bee Guild is that people change when it's their idea to change. That's right. In order to make informed decisions to change, they have to go through individual processes along that way. And most individuals don't know that they have a problem that they want to change. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy for us to point out, hey, you've got a problem and you should change. But that person doesn't see it as a problem. They're not yeah. going to make the effort to change. And that is one of our goals is to be having that discussion and the information is available. And when a person is ready to make a move in a practice or, a, you know, a, a mannerism in their beekeeping, then they are going to have the tools and resources available to them. So not only are we going to provide education, but we're also going to provide natural beekeeping education. We're going to provide a venue where you can talk about that without the vitriol that has existed in this stage for such a long time. Um, Both sides. Yes, that's right. Both sides. Um, so we're very firm on ensuring a uh, moderated dialogue is occurring. And we're not there's no tolerance for the the uh, the hostilities in the that's attacks. Right. That's not what the guild is about. And that's one of the reasons why we're hosting a conference. Did you know we were hosting a conference? I know. What kind of conference? Well, <laughs> so, Where can we get tickets? Yeah. So we're hosting a conference. It's a winter virtual conference. It's on March 5th. Um, and it starts at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. If you want to get actual information and speaker bios and learn all about it, you can go to our website, which is sbgmi.org and forward slash conference. So that's the Sustainable Beekeepers Guild of Michigan, SBGMI, and the forward slash conference. That'll take you to the list dot of all. Com, right? Dot, dot org. Dot org, sorry, yeah. Yep, sbgmi.org. And if you just go there, you can find the conference links readily. But if you put forward slash conference, it'll take you right there. And so uh, we're planning to have a great lineup. I'm excited. Um, one of the speakers- I know you have a great lineup. <laughs> yeah, yes, we sure do. One of the speakers is speaking right now. We have, <laughs> uh, she'll be sharing some information with us. Michael Bush will be there. Right, Les um, Crowder. Outer. I'm really excited. I love Les. Mm -hmm. and, um, Terry Combs. Terry Combs. 
there. He's got a really excellent presentation he's working on. I'm not going to reveal any of his secrets because it's really, it's really going to be well thought out, well researched. It's going to give you good data about sustainable beekeeping practice and natural selection in your own apiary. Um, Corey Stevens? Yes, right. He's a VSH queen breeder. He's been keeping bees treatment free for over 10 years, I think. Um, and he's going to share with us his practice and, you know, how he has reached a point in sustainability in his own apiary and how his, his VSH lines are doing fine and he doesn't have to treat um, and he doesn't have ridiculous losses. Um, mm -hmm. so something that I want to learn from and others who are interested may very well also want to learn from. So we'll put the link by the way um, in the, in the, in the, description of the um this recording so that's great we want a straight shot at it just go click on there yep and then so we're offering also anybody who signs up um who purchases a ticket it's 35 dollars if you're a current great value by the way yeah for for all of those speakers mm -hmm. and, um if you're an existing club member guild member you'll get a discount at 25 dollars but the membership also includes a six month subscription to the natural bee husbandry magazine from Northern bee books. That's awesome. Uh, which in and of itself, I think. Is that right there? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you also get one year membership of the guild. So even if you're not from Michigan, um, you can participate in member meetings, benefit from recordings and teachings and things that are happening. You'll get access to those members areas as well. Um, but again, you know, our, our primary purpose is to discuss um, the, the goal of having a sustainable apiary that doesn't require significant synthetic or chemical interventions in order for your bees to live um, and to provide resources. And this is the one thing I'm most excited about. We are developing a program where you can earn your first bee colony. You can get your first bee colony by putting in one year in the apiary. Wow. And Spending one year with an experienced beekeeper, uh, we'll give you a veil. We'll give you we'll give you some resources, but you can get your bees from the bee guild by successfully completing a one year in mentorship. And that's how important education, beekeeping education, right. um, is. Uh, I can give you statistics on that, but I won't bore you with it. You can look it up. That's awesome. That's a great value, and especially for those of you in Michigan that are looking for a way to learn. Um, that's a great educational event and it's going to have a lot of practical tips, which is what matters. And that's why we're, we're really wanting to help you promote this. And, 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 and to conclude, I would say, you know, the, the reason we're not using treatment free or chemical free when we promote these kind of, uh, events and it's true of the world be day natural beekeeping webinar that's coming up on May 20th is that we want to be able to include everyone. We welcome everyone. We don't want to be extremist about it. And we want to become mainstream in the underlying message that comes with that kind of education. So not antagonizing people is the first step for that, right? We're going to love our neighbors. That's right. So with that, James, I know we've been talking for a long time and I really appreciate you doing this, especially on the weekend. And especially as you've got little ones in the house that you're in charge of and, and, and it's not always easy. So thank you very much, James. I'm looking forward to March 5th. For me too. For Thanks reason. for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And if you guys have questions, just uh, put them in the comments and we'll route them to James. Have a good one.
You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.